Our scripture today is from Acts 11, 19 to 30. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some men, some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Abagus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. All right. Thank you, Mary, for reading that text for us. Um, as a Student of the Bible, I love this passage because there's all kinds of fun stuff um, that's happening in it <clears throat> and that I'm looking forward to unpacking. So we're just going to kind of walk through some of the details that happened here. Uh, but before we do that, I wanted to reiterate something that Melanie just said, and that is we're going to be having a Super Bowl party here. Uh, and so the game will be on in this room and there'll be some things for the kids to do and and it will be a chili cook-off, and this is the part where you need to listen to me, okay? There's a trophy, and the trophy is one of those that has like a, a little plaque that a name will be engraved on, and the trophy will live here, okay? So start thinking about getting your name on that trophy, um, and there will be competition for it, but I am confident you will win. <laughs> so, it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, yeah, okay. So, so much is happening in this passage. Okay, if you were alive during the era of the book of Acts, and if you happen to be one of the people who were counted among the new believers uh, who were gathered in Jerusalem in those early chapters, there's one event that's described in Acts chapter 7 that would stand out to you as a watershed moment, as a defining moment for you. It would be a day that would mark when you asked yourself the question before God, if you were truly devoted to Christ, or if you were just play-acting a part in this kind of new, intriguing religious movement. Every time in history there's been a uh, kind of a new 
uh, religious movement that's come around, people will join because it's, um, forgive the term, but there's a sexiness to it. And people will, will, will join because it seems like everybody who's cool is also a part of it. But they don't necessarily believe, but, but they see something happening and they want to be, they don't want to miss out, you know. But there's something that happened in Acts 7. And what happened in Acts 7 was the moment when Stephen was stoned to death for his faith in Christ and his proclamation of the gospel. Stephen was the first Christian martyr. And that story, if you remember, he was falsely accused of speaking against the law of God and the high priests demanded that Stephen defend himself. And so what he did to defend himself is he proclaimed how Jesus was the fulfillment of those scriptures that were so dear to his heart and how the priests who were now interrogating him, they were the guilty ones. He even said in his sermon, you have now betrayed and murdered the righteous one. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. It was direct. It was obviously provocative. And his, resp- his response drew such rage from the religious leaders in Jerusalem that they stoned him to death. That was a defining moment. There were two developments that came out of that watershed moment that come to play in the passage we just read today. The first development is there was a young Pharisee named Saul who oversaw Stephen's stoning death. In fact, Saul hated the church so much that he took it upon himself to destroy all Christians everywhere until the Lord interrupted his persecution by making a believer out of him. And he became the Apostle Paul. Caravaggio depicted that moment in the painting that's on the back wall of the sanctuary here. The second development, not just Saul's conversion, but the second development was as a result of the stoning death of Stephen and Saul's persecution of the church, many believers who were in Jerusalem, scattered from there and started to return to their home countries and in the process of doing that, left a bunch of little churches in all the little towns where they stopped along the way and where they preached Christ. And so today in this passage, we're coming upon one of those churches, one of the churches that exists for that reason. And who should be there to care for that church, but the Apostle Paul. And that's cool, right? The guy who was seeking to destroy the church, we find him here caring for the church, but it gets better. He's there by the invitation of Barnabas, who was a good friend of Stephen's. So Paul is there at the invitation of Barnabas, who was a friend of Stephen, whose stoning death Paul oversaw. Now let's walk through the passage. This is, by the way, a great passage. If you're in a place right now in your life where you feel like, I need God to be big, this is one of those passages where you see 
the bigness of God. You see the way that he works in time and space and the way things that just seem like they would never happen come to pass. So let's talk about Barnabas for a minute. On the ground, the fallout from Stephen's death as the persecution intensified was that many believers fled Jerusalem for the safety of their own home countries. And though many fled, one of the things that we see, they were fleeing due to persecution, but a glorious truth that we see is that even though they were fleeing due to persecution, they apparently didn't lose their faith in Jesus in the process, but instead continued to proclaim Christ. Now, Luke doesn't hit us over the head with it here, but he illustrates it. He illustrates it in much the same way as what Joseph said at the end of Genesis when he said that what was meant for evil, God then used for good. So we're in Antioch. Antioch was home to half a million people. 500,000 people called Antioch home. It was the third largest city in the Roman Empire after Rome and Alexandria. And Antioch had this growing body of believers, and this church in Antioch needed a shepherd. And so Barnabas, who was a dear friend of the apostles, was sent to care for that church. And he was a good pastor. The text describes him, you heard it read, the text describes him as somebody who is full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, that he was known for being an encourager. And Barnabas is one of these characters who's guileless. He doesn't carry any air of superiority. In fact, we see that because when he arrives in Antioch to this work that has been happening, we see his reaction to the church there. He doesn't walk in and look around and think, this place is a hot mess. What they need is me to make it better. Instead, what he does is, he, is the text tells us in verse 25, he saw the grace of God and was glad. Oh, that our responses would be the same when we see the Lord working in settings other than our own, you know? Humble Barnabas was glad And the church grew under his care. But then Barnabas, he does something incredibly humble, incredibly wise, and incredibly shrewd. And that is, he makes Paul his partner in ministry there. He goes and he gets Paul and he brings him. And they work side by side. This is the era, it will later become in the book of Acts, Paul and Barnabas. But right now we're in the era of Barnabas and Paul. And he brings Paul, and through them, God works to grab the attention of the watching world, leaving those around them looking for a name by which to call these peculiar people in Antioch. How's this for irony? I mean, it's just so good, right? Saul's persecution of the church with the intent to destroy the church instead of crushing the church led to its global expansion. Because of his persecution, people fled, but they kept preaching Christ, and so churches start popping up further and further from Jerusalem because of, in part, Paul's persecution. And then Saul became the man that God used to actually expand the church further than any other apostle. I mean, that's just rich, right? If you're feeling the need of a big God today, take heart. 
because this is what he's doing here in this passage. I don't know if for you when you were hearing the passage read, I don't know if there was a moment when you're like, okay, this got a little weird. Um, Because in verses 27 and 30, a, a, a prophet shows up, right, named Agabus. You ever stop and wonder what's going on with with Agabus. Um, so during Paul and, no, sorry, during Barnabas and Paul's ministry in Antioch, Luke writes this. He says, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine all over the world. Who are these prophets? What do we do with them? We don't know a lot about them, except that they were most often traveling preachers who were being used by the Spirit of God at that time to exhort people, to explain the significance of the Old Testament and Old Testament prophecies, and then sometimes also to predict the future. And here they come to Antioch, and all we know is one of them, Agabus, is foretelling a coming famine. Agabus appears one other time in the book of Acts, and that's much later in Acts chapter 21, uh, and he's traveling to Caesarea to meet Paul and Luke, who are there staying with Philip. You remember Philip, that's Philip of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, Philip, right? So he goes and he finds Paul, and he tells Paul in Acts 21, if you go to Jerusalem as you intend, you will be arrested. That's the message. And Paul's friends all come around him and they say, then don't go to Jerusalem. But Paul's response to this, and this this is why I'm telling you all this, is it's fascinating, is that Paul's response to the news that Agabus brings, to the future that he foretells, is he says, I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of Jesus. And he goes anyway. So, what's going on here? Well, what we need to see about these prophets is God uses them to foretell the future. Paul was arrested in Jerusalem when he went. But these prophets don't speak with authority. Like, they don't speak in an authoritative voice. Meaning, they're foretelling the future, but they're not following that up by then telling people what they're supposed to do about it. They just tell him what's coming. So Paul hears the report from Agabus in Acts 21, and he goes to Jerusalem anyway. And the reason he goes to Jerusalem is because he believes that that is following the Lord's will. So I don't know about you. I don't know if you've ever wished you had a prophet who would come along and tell you not only what's going to happen, but what you should do about it. But that's not even the role these prophets are playing. They're coming and they're telling people what's going to happen. But in neither case does Agabus also tell the people what they should do. So they're speaking through the Holy Spirit, but they're not speaking authoritative words over the church about what they should do. Because in this point in time, the Lord is cultivating that authoritative voice among the apostles themselves. So that's a fascinating little detail in scripture is here you have prophets but they're not authoritative voices Um, but they're speaking the truth and they're projecting the future but then the church 
has the responsibility to hear and then decide what to do with it. Luke doesn't focus on the prophecy. What Luke focuses on as he's writing the book of Acts is he focuses on the response to it. And here is where we see the greatness of God again. Only this time, not so much through providential irony, the irony of the Apostle Paul being used to spread the church further than any other apostle, even as he was once the man trying to stop the church from spreading at all. But this time we see a providential call to action. So picture this. There are Christians in Antioch. Antioch is a wealthy Gentile city. Many of the Christians in Antioch are Gentiles, and they hear of a famine that's coming, one that's maybe already begun in other parts of the world. And they're wealthy people. And with this information that the believers in Jerusalem are facing a dire life or death consequence, life or death conditions, that's how the the historian Josephus described this famine. He said it was dire life or death conditions. But the people in Judea, in Jerusalem, that they respond to, these people have not always been kind to Gentiles. And they haven't even been kind to many of the Jewish people who chose to live in Gentile cities. Add to that, famines happen all the time, right? No matter how rich you are, no one group can possibly relieve all of the famines that are happening around. But what do these believers in Antioch do? They send relief. They take up a collection and they send relief to the church in Jerusalem. And they give what each has the ability to give. It says that they send relief, each giving what he can according to his ability. Why is this a big deal? Uh, James Boyce, James Montgomery Boyce, who's now deceased, but he was the pastor of Second Pres in Philadelphia. Uh, He has a commentary on Acts. It's wonderful, and it's delightfully readable. (laughs) Um, If you like commentaries that are readable, it's a a great one. I think it's it's his sermons converted into book form. Um, But he gives us this perspective about why this is such a big deal. Why Why does what's happening here make the pages of Scripture? When he wonders if, quote, this is the first charitable act of this nature in all of recorded history. One race of people collecting money to help another race of people. That kind of stopped me in my tracks. That didn't happen. Even if Boyce is not entirely right about that, his point still holds that this was an extremely rare act of generosity from one group of people in one part of the world sending relief to another group of people in another part of the world who are different from them. Why was this act of generosity so rare? It was so rare because the world at that time was even more divided than it is now. It was more carved up into racial distinctions and religious distinctions, and they didn't overlap And so for these Greek-influenced believers, that's what Hellenist means. If you saw that word, it means they're Greek, they have Greek influence. If these Greek-influenced believers in Antioch show this kind of unity with other believers in another part of the world, well, that was something that just wasn't done much, if ever. 
But in this text, we see something even more astounding and beautiful is that Luke says the believers in Antioch, they each gave according to their ability to send relief to their brothers in Judea. In their response to their brothers and sisters in need, we find some principles for generosity here, for for Christian generosity that was of the nature that people were noticing it and saying, we've never seen anything like this before. And I have three principles of Christian generosity. How do you like that? Three points. The first is this, is that the giving was a personal decision, each giving what they could. So there's a principle of Christian generosity, is I can't tell you what to give. Each person determined what they could offer, and that's what they gave. There's a freedom in our generosity. I mean, we are all called to be generous, but what we give is a decision that we intentionally make before the Lord, and that's what happened here. Each person thought, okay, what can we give to this? And that's what they gave. Second, they regarded their giving as a Christian duty, as a responsibility. And the reason it was their responsibility was because the people who were in need were, as far as they were concerned, their family. They were their brothers and their sisters. So they regarded their giving, this is the second point, they regarded their giving as a Christian duty. Remember, this transaction took place between Jews and Gentiles. And it took place because they weren't Jews and Gentiles anymore. They were brothers and sisters in Christ. And historically, this was so unheard of and so united them that the world around them started asking the question of what was going on here? Who are these people? And so it was the Gentiles in Antioch who noticed the strangeness of Christians and felt compelled to call them something. They were so different. And it was the watching world that gave the church the name Christian which means Christ ones, that this thing that unites them and holds them together is this shared belief they have in a Nazarene who is said to be risen from the dead. I mean, I pray that the watching world would be so intrigued by our lives that they feel compelled to name us, and I quickly follow that prayer, that the only name they would find suitable for us would be one that would bring glory to God and not shame upon his reputation. So the first principle was that giving was a personal decision, each giving what they could. The second is they regarded their giving as a Christian responsibility to their brothers and sisters. The third, and I think this is also very, very interesting, is that their gift was delivered in a very formal way. It was a very formal transaction that took place. If you notice in the passage what verse 30 tells us, it tells us that the believers in Antioch Antioch, took the collection and then they sent their leaders to deliver the relief to the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. Why does that matter? Well, I pointed out to say there is a solemn importance to our care for the church worldwide. That Christ Pres Cool Springs is not unaffiliated or unconnected to churches in other parts of the world. You will search scripture in vain to find any hint that Jesus has ushered in a new 
uh, more relaxed way uh, of relating to God and his people, though many in, in Christian circles will kind of treat it that way, like, it's just me and Jesus, right? Now, absolutely, hear me clearly on this, we must not put ourselves under a yoke of religious or ceremonial slavery, but at the same time, we have to understand that being a member of the church universal is a very serious thing. It's serious business. Thousands of people die for this faith every year throughout the world. And if you are a Christian, they are your brothers and sisters. And so when we see the formality of this exchange in our text, we should ask God to give us eyes to see how seriously he takes our lives and our role as Christians in the world, and also that he would give us eyes to see any way we may be cavalier in how we approach or regard our faith in him. It's an enormous thing to be part of the body of Christ and to remember in this passage that I'm only a part of the body of Christ. I'm not the main thing, right? But we're given a name, and we're given a name here by a watching world, and it's incumbent upon us to take that name seriously, to take the name Christian, if you will, seriously. To not take it seriously is to take our Lord's name in vain. Our call is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And so when Agabus comes along, he comes along with a situation but not an answer. The church knows who to ask. And they do so on their knees and they pray. And they break convention to care for their brothers and sisters. It's a sober thing to follow Jesus. And so my prayer for us is that we would delight in our freedom in Christ and be among the most joyful people on the planet. But as we do, to consider daily the preciousness of the gift that we possess in Christ and that we would revere him. When we see our brothers and sisters in need, may we see it as a chance to bring glory to God with our lives as we offer up whatever it is that we have to give. And when we ourselves are in need, may we pray that the Lord would use our suffering to raise up before the watching world other peculiar people who would be compelled to care for us in such a way that the world would be compelled to figure out the name. What do we call them? and that the name would bring glory to God. And when we come upon passages like this, which display God's power over history, over former persecutors even, may we stand in awe of his greatness. Amen? Let me pray. Father, I thank you for passages like this that tell a beautiful story, that tell the story of you working and defying intentions that are meant for evil as you did with what was going on in the heart of Saul of Tarsus. And Father, we pray that you would give us the humility to remember um, that 
there's no heart that's out of your reach. And uh, Lord, we cling to that. We cling to that because the truth is, uh, for many of us, we, we, wonder, uh, we wonder about that very thing. And so thank you for this passage. Father, I pray for this church as we continue to mature and grow as a, as a three-year-old congregation, three years and change, that you would continue to deepen not only our community with one another, but that you would continue also to deepen our um, connection to those in need around us, that you would use this church as a, uh, a ministry of care for those in need and that you would show us, that you would bring to us word of those in need, and uh, that we would be moved to generosity of, of not only of spirit, but of resources and time. And uh, we thank you for all of this in your matchless name, Jesus. Amen.